Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Bilms. He's at the University of Washington. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for coming. Brief intro of who you are and, uh, you know, talk about, uh, let's talk about the research and the projects you're working on, Melody. Sure, sounds good. So I'm a professor at the University of Washington, Seattle, in the Department of Electrical Engineering. And I've been working on machine learning and AI for about the past 25 years. And wow. uh, a couple of different applications of machine learning, including things like uh, speech recognition and computational biology and non-speech, but voice-based human-computer interfaces and things like that, but also a lot of sort of what maybe you could call um, pure machine learning technology. Uh, mm. The thing that I've been kind of excited about lately is uh, essentially uh, technology to try to understand how you can measure information and data, or something what I like to call uh, the science of information management. And what this is stuff that allows you to um, like take uh, very, very large data sets uh, and you know, information, uh, large data sets that contain a lot of information, but then, but then make them more efficient so that they, they express the same information, but much more uh, efficiently and without, without the size. So it's kind of like big, small, but still informative data, unlike big data, which is big and informative. This is like small, but still informative data. Well, you're talking about training data necessary to train an AI. You know, I've heard that tons of data is needed, or is it, if you just have countless millions of points of data, instead of having, having to use it all to get a representative sample or answer, you could use a subset of it or a smaller amount. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, the thing about, you know, data, I mean, data is one of the critical things that has enabled machine learning and AI to be successful. And one of the things about big data is that it's also very redundant. And, you know, like, for example, there's not a lot of information if you have the same photo duplicated many times, but there's many other kinds of redundancy besides just uh, duplication of data items. It could be things it could be, like it like might have pictures of trees and it might be the same kind of tree or the same angle of the tree or the same time of year. And you don't actually need as many photos of that particular kind of tree. Uh, but the concepts themselves might actually not be things that humans are good at, at recognizing, like, for example, the tree. There might be other sort of deeper concepts that the data expresses redundantly. And the question is, it's not really efficient to actually have all of that information expressed redundantly in a data set when you can actually reduce it in some way while still preserving the information. So you can actually produce a useful machine learning system, uh, but much more efficiently. So that's sort of well, what I mean by the science of yeah. information management. 
Well, what's, an, Sorry, what's a specific example that you're working on in the lab? You know, are you looking at machine vision, and instead of having to show the computer 8 million pictures of cats, you can somehow show less? Or, like, what, what are you working on specifically? Um, yeah, you definitely don't need 8 million pictures of cats um, to understand yeah. what a cat is. I mean, humans do it without very many images of cats. They can very quickly, you know, small children can recognize a cat only after seeing maybe one or two examples. But, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing. I mean, it's... It's not just machine vision or computer vision. It's uh, we're, we've applied this approach, this kind of stuff, to um, uh, speech recognition and to mach statistical machine translation and to proteomics. You know, trying to understand the, the proteome and also to genomics, trying to understand the human genome and also to smart city data and basically any kind of data, any type of modality you can imagine, generally is faced with this kind of problem, you know, the problem of redundancy. And it really makes producing machine learning and AI systems much more expensive than it needs to be. And so in some sense, you could sort of think of this as basically, you know, finding good solutions, finding good machine learning systems faster and more efficiently than you'd be able to do otherwise. And possibly because you can find them faster and more efficiently, you know, you can do more of an exploration in a given amount of time. And so Therefore, you can, if you have the same amount of time and the same amount of compute power, you can actually find something better because you do more with the same resources as you would otherwise. But data has a cost, so I guess uh, the less data you have to get, the cheaper it could be. And then there's processing time. So again, the less data you have to process, the faster you can process to get to a solution. Any that's right. Any other factors uh, missing that would that that would benefit from this process? Well, there's also different process? kinds of data. Yeah, there's like label data. Label data is particularly difficult to get because, you know, you have to have humans go in and look at the data and tell you what it is before you actually, before you can use it in a machine learning system. And that's also costly and error prone. So if it's the case that you can get humans to only label the necessary data, the data that you actually need, uh, and that's not redundant, you don't want humans to go around labeling stuff that you already know about, because that's, that's pretty wasteful and expensive. So it's not just reduced compute time, it's reduced, actually reduced dollars and, and reduced um, uh, search time, so you can actually find a solution faster. Any other things that uh, that more efficient data will do? Any other benefits? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Like, um, I mean, one one sort of task that I'm hoping to address someday is is, is things like medical tests. Like, let's say that you've spent a billion de dollars developing a new drug of some sort, and you'd like to test it on a population, but you want to make sure that the drug doesn't have any adverse effects on any subgroup within the population. And so you could, for example, like take a random sample of the population and check and, you know, if it all works out, that's okay. But there's no guarantee that that random subset of the population is representative of the whole population. There might be some subgroup that you miss because when you take a random sample, you have no guarantees that, that you're going to catch all, all the corner cases. And if you come up with, say, a representative, you know, a way of, you can think of this as essentially a population and their genome, say, as a, as a large data set. And if you come up with a representative subset of the data set, and in this case, a representative subset of the population, you can be more sure that there are no corner cases that you've missed. And the drug that you've spent a lot of time and effort developing will you know, have more assurances that it's safe. So that's something that actually could potentially have some real societal benefits, I think. Uh, in the, at least in the medical community. So how do you make data um, processing more efficient? Uh, the algorithms or is it other basic concepts? Like what have you 
what kind of toolkit have you developed to do this? Well, so it's something that we've been working on for, you know, I guess about 15 years or so, but it's right now beginning to be, to, to blossom into a lot of different areas. But it's basically using uh, the mathematics of information on data sets. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's something that ordinarily would be computationally very hard to do, but thanks to the properties of this particular set of techniques, it's actually not computationally infeasible to come up with good uh, subsets of data. Um, the particular, I mean, I've been working a lot, I, I'll just tell you the name of the method. It's called submodular optimization, submodular function. And it's, you can think of it, it's sort of, on the one hand, it's an old technique, but it's relatively new in machine learning. And it's something that, I mean, you've heard a lot about, for example, deep learning and modern AI techniques. And this is something that's compatible with all of those methods because it essentially can be used to make any machine learning method more efficient in that way. And, you know, we've developed a lot of algorithms for it, which are, you know, pure algorithmic styles, pure, purely algorithmic developments. And also we've developed a bunch of software and a bunch of strategies for applying it to different types of data. Okay. So uh, any examples of uh, data collection and processing you've made more efficient that are out there in the wild? You know, and what are some of the, uh, the beneficial numbers? You know, can you contrast them before and after speed, time, number of data pieces, et cetera? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the best way to answer that question is to go look at my publications page. Being an academic, of course, you know, everything's in the publications. But, I mean, it, it's a sort of a trade-off because, you know, let's say you have a data set. Let's just make it concrete by giving you an example of, let's say that there's 100 data items. Um, and, um, you know, it really, it's, there's sort of a quality size trade-off. Like, you might say, um, I can only afford... Uh, in terms of compute time or some sort of budget to have 10 data, data items. So, so that, that turns into a problem of how do I find the 10 most representative data items out of those 100, right? And so in that case, you get a factor of 10 improvement in efficiency and speed uh, because you're using a factor of 10 fewer data items than you would otherwise. Uh, there's another approach where maybe you're more quality conscious and you might say, okay, I... I don't have any cost limit, but I still want to save as much in terms of cost as possible. So, but quality is the primary thing I'm concerned with. And so you might say, find me the smallest data that preserves you know, 96% of the quality, in which case it'll say, okay, here's the 27 items out of those 100 that preserves 96% of the quality. And then you say, great. And then you just use them, in which case then you get like a factor of four reduction in or factor four improvement in efficiency yeah it sounds like um design of experiments where they do fractional um and a fractional amount of parameters but they want a certain confidence level in the results it sounds exactly like that applied to data in a certain way yeah it is similar to that but it, the question is how does one do it and actually and we're using machine learning and ai it's interesting because the way that we achieve this is by using some of the strategies of machine learning and ai to actually produce the algorithms that can then reduce the sizes of the data sets, which then can be used in subsequent rounds of machine learning and AI to self-referential okay. in a certain sense. What's it, what's it been like for you to be in this field for 25 years? I mean, did you come to like, uh, did you run into a lot of brick walls for a while? It, it seems like AI for some reason just recently is blossoming. What do you think, why are there breakthroughs now when for so long it seemed to go quiet? Yeah, it's interesting actually. Um, a good question. So one of the things that's interesting is just even the language on how we refer to AI has changed. You know, AI has now become uh, a count noun, where you can talk about 
10 AI or two AIs or, you know, let's combine several AIs together into one AI. It used to be the case that AI was a mass noun. You know, like, for example, the word confidence is a mass noun. You can't say two confidences, but, but uh, the word book is a count noun. You can say two books. And AI used to only be a mass noun. You could say things. And I still use that language. They say we use AI techniques or AI types of methods to solve a problem. I never, for example, use the language three AIs is what it takes to screw in a light bulb, for example. Um, <laughs> but basically, other than the language change, um, the question is, you know, really, you know, what is AI? And, and I'm, I'm probably going to disappoint you in certain sense, because I don't think really AI is anything different than, than standard computer science. It's basically just a set of techniques that enable computers to do more things, just like any branch of computer science. Like database technology allows computers to do databases and uh, optimization methods allow you to optimize and AI allows you to do more things. But in this particular case, AI allows computers to do things that, you know, tend to be things that humans do, like understanding images or recognizing speech. Um, and there's a lot, actually, I mean, I, I, I've never like used the word uh, brick wall or roadblock. I've never in this time I've been working in, in this field felt like there was a roadblock. But you're right that in the past couple of years, there's been a lot more interest in um, uh, AI. Um, and I think that that's going to continue. I mean, I think AI is going to become increasingly more important, but it's for the same reason that computers will become more important and integrated in our lives. And you know, the reason why is because we're going to want computers to solve more and more tasks to you know, hopefully and ideally make our lives better. Um, but this is not really anything different than what's been what's happened before. I mean, historically, you know, computers were used to make our lives better by solving things like financial calculations or maybe physical simulations or solving problems in manufacturing or operations research. And then, you know, in the 70s, you know, the computers became more personal and things like word processors and spreadsheets and then, you know, entertainment kinds of things happened, computer games. But, you know, what's happening is as computers are becoming more powerful, the tasks themselves are becoming more complex and the the code needed to get computers to solve those more complex tasks are also becoming correspondingly more complex. And so what's happening is that, you know, humans themselves, you know, we are not really getting much smarter, but the tasks and the corresponding code to solve those tasks are becoming more complex. And so our our you know humans' ability to solve these these tasks, you know, effectively and efficiently and in a timely manner is reduced. And, and so what is machine learning really? And what is AI? Or what you know, machine learning sort of leading to AI basically is the following. It's basically, it's, it's rather than actually solving a task directly by computer, by having a human write down, write a program to solve a task. What we're doing is we're writing a program that itself learns how to solve another task. So this is really in some sense, a form of, of indirection. And again, this is nothing new. You're probably familiar with the famous quote by uh, David Wheeler, I think, that said that all programs or all problems in computer science can be solved by one more level of interaction. So machine learning is just another instance of this. We're just we're we're doing indirect algorithms. So I think that rather than calling it AI for artificial intelligence, what I think we should be calling it is indirect algorithms because we're writing programs that write programs to solve tasks, and the way that it's done is using data and optimization. So you ask the questions like what is why is it why has there been such a success in machine learning the couple of, past couple of years? So 
Right. So I think that there's really, in some sense, three things that have changed, maybe in the past 10 years, maybe a little bit sooner, but basically three things have come to pass that have uh, changed this. First is, you know, there's, there's you know, big data. I mean, people don't talk about big data that much anymore, but big data is still here, right? Big data is big and getting bigger, right. and it's going to keep getting bigger. And not only that, but it's, you know, related to the stuff that, you know, my own research is about, there's also big information, right? So there's a ton of information in the big data, but maybe it's not being represented that efficiently, right? Uh, but so there's big data. The second thing that has enabled machine learning is, is that there's just massive amounts of commodity vector supercomputing, you know, in the form of graphics processing units, GPUs. Uh, you, yep. know, it, but, you know, it's amazing to me. I mean, having worked in computer science for a while is that you can, for less than $1,000, you can get an 11 teraflop GPU card. And that, that is huh. truly an amazing. 11 teraflops is, is not even, even conceivable in terms of how much compute that, that is and what you can do with that kind of thing. So those kinds of commodity supercomputing cards that you can get very cheaply have changed things. Now, the question is, why did this happen? Um, one of the things that not people, people don't talk about that much is, is, you know, essentially in the 1990s, there were teenagers wanting to play video games on home computers. And these teenagers essentially created a, a mass market for commodity vector coprocessors and they're the ones who enabled firms like NVIDIA in the early 90s to get started. And then NVIDIA invested massive amounts of money to create essentially economies of scale for this kind of commodity supercomputing. So I think that we owe the AI revolution as much to teenagers in the 1990s playing video games as we do to anything else. Because if it wasn't for the ubiquity of commodity supercomputing, you know, this wouldn't be happening right now. Then, then the, of course, is the third thing, which is what everybody's talking about these days, is uh, deep models. And essentially, what that really is is, you know, an expressive family of mathematical models. And there, there's two things about them that that's really important. Uh, one is that they're expressive, meaning that they can do a lot of things. You can get them to solve a lot of problems. But the other critical thing, which folks are not talking about as much, is that they happen just by chance to to perfectly fit the type of computing that's provided by GPU. Uh, and that's basically matrix computations. So neural networks and deep neural networks and all that kind of stuff basically require vast amount of matrix matrix computations. And that's exactly the kind of computations that GPUs can do really, really efficiently and really cheaply. So if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for the fact that this particular class of model, deep models, fit with GPUs and that we have tons of data to train it on, none of this would be happening, I think. So nothing really remarkable is going on, I'm sad to say. But and in some sense, it's really simple, but that's really, I think, what's happening. So it's an ag aggregation of several factors that seem to be uh, coming all at once now that's, that's accelerating things. Yeah, that, that's right. So okay. um, there are some really important issues in AI, however, that, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about AI in society, and there are some, some critical issues that we still have to, to solve. I can talk about them if you want. Yeah, let's talk about right. What do you think are the uh, either potential downsides or like the biggest issues that you know, if more successful, which it probably will be, what's AI, what's AI going to disrupt in your mind? Well, it's already in some sense disrupting a lot of things, but there are a couple. I mean, so one of the things I don't think it, it, we're in any danger of there happening is any sort of AI smart robots taking over the world. That's that's basically just science science fiction. And there's, there, you do hear a lot of you know, the popular press talking about the science fiction of artificial intelligence and you see movies and science fiction books and everything. And that has been going on for a long time. But what, you know, essentially, you know, AI machine learning is, 
is new capability. And so one of the things that, uh, well, there's a couple of things actually we need to, to solve. Like one is a sort of reliability issue. Um, uh, you've heard a lot about self-driving cars and, you know, the technology in some sense is mostly here for a car to drive around by itself and, and be pretty safe, you know, arguably safer than a human driver. But the question is when an accident happens, you know, at some point, a self-driving car will cause a mass fatality event. And the question is, hmm. who is liable? Um, right, is, yeah. is the person liable as the designer who architected the model itself, the person who set up the deep model? Or is it the person who wrote the toolkit that then learned that model? Or is it the, the you know, organization that supplied the self-driving car data? You know, or is it maybe the person who developed the mechanics of the car? Or maybe it's the lawyer or the politician who said it was okay to put that self-driving car on the road? You know, who, who amongst those five entities should be held responsible or maybe some combination of all of the above. I mean, the current the problem is like our current notion of liability that, you know, the driver, when there's an accident, the driver of the car is held responsible. The liability laws need to change and need to evolve. And right now, liability laws might be one of the critical things that are holding back self-driving car technology from hitting the road in mass. And actually related to that <clears throat> is um, interpretability and accountability. You know, so like you have a massive trained machine learning system that does fantastic things and it's got maybe hundreds of millions of parameters in it. So how do you in right. interpret that? How do you, how do you understand why did it say what it said? You know, why did it recognize that image of the cat? What about that cat made it recognize it as a cat? I mean, we need, you know, we, rather than black boxes, we need to treat them as transparent boxes. And in fact, actually, there's a group at Google called Glassbox that's specifically trying to make machine learning methods more transparent. And there are other people in the research community as well, and the people who are, who are spending their research careers on trying to make machine learning systems more transparent. Yeah, I've heard, uh, you know, machines talking to each other came up with their own language that wasn't really decipherable by outsiders. Um, it seems like uh, machine intelligence actually is a real thing, and machines sometimes are finding solutions to problems that people never found, and they sometimes don't understand how the machine got there. So it's not just transparency right. into everyone understanding how it works, but literally understanding how to do that. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's a research problem. That is what we need more research in order to solve, uh, because these are very complicated models. They're, you know, like I said, hundreds of millions of parameters, maybe even more. And the question is, for things like accountability and liability, there needs to be ways to try to understand them. Now, actually, one advantage that we have with machine learning produced models over, say, for example, trying to understand the human brain is that we can kind of mess with models without disturbing what they do. Like there are, there are many people you know, in the neurobiology field who, who will try to understand brains of animals by looking at the way a single or a small group of neurons responds to, to you know, visual stimuli. But the problem is that as soon as you put in a probe on a neuron, you change the way it behaves. With a big neural network, you can actually see the, the activation functions at any given layer, and you can look at what it's doing in response to an input without actually changing what it ends up doing with those activations later on in the network. And so there's a huge advantage. And so I believe this is, this is a very surmountable problem. This is something that we're, we're going to have no trouble solving in the future, unlike, for example, understanding the human brain, where just by observing it, you're changing its behavior. Um, but what's related to that also is, is that, you know, we need to make sure that algorithms 
you know, by, by them being transparent and interpretable, we need to make sure that they're fair and they're unbiased and that even if, if there are um, unintended biases in the data, that the resulting learned machine learning system doesn't reflect uh, those biases. Um, another, by the way, this, so the, another thing that is also somewhat related to what you just said is is this notion of um, adversarial examples, or, or maybe what you could call you know, artificial illusions, uh, artificial okay. illusions for artificial intelligence systems, and that's where many people have shown that you can take images or you know, folks at uh, Kyushu University in Japan or at Berkeley or at Google, they're creating instances of images that to a human look perfectly fine. And you would never recognize a dog as anything other than a dog, but you know you might change one pixel and you change the response. You change what a neural network does with it, or you change a speech utterance to uh, you know sound perfectly fine for a human, but then the machine learning system does something completely wacky with it. And um, yeah. those ad those adversarial examples are really, I think that's really important research because basically in order for these systems to be deployed in the wild, you know, they need to be reliable, robust, and uh, stable. And if it's the case that it's so easy to fool these things with adversarial examples, then they're not going to be reliable and we can't trust them, you know, stable. So it's not like, it's also similar to, you know, humans have illusions too. You know, there's many optical illusions and illusory contours. The difference again is that in a machine learning system, you know, we have the objective function. We, we can actually drive the objective function to change the input so that the input transforms into one of these adversarial examples. And that's only because we have access to the thing that actually produced the machine learning system and we have access to, to, to do mathematical manipulations through the parameters of the model into the input. With a human, you can't do that. So you can't like, for example, drive through the human brain a, a given visual stimulus into um, an illusion that, that doesn't work. So. Uh, it's, it's just something that has to be, uh, you know, again, this is a research, uh, I think this is a research problem and I think it will be solved eventually. Um, uh, the, a couple of other really important problems, however, with AI, this is more sort of AI and society, and that's, that's sort of trying to understand right. truth and trust. And, you know, you've, you've heard about fake photos done with Photoshop for a long time. And yep. even before then, there were things like the special effects industry in movies has been producing, uh, you know, amazing but not real visual effects that you know we we were told are are fake and even going further back there are things like um like uh, the mechanical turk which was a fake chess playing machine back in the 1700s that's yeah. actually really uh it's a really important issue and i think there for example there's it, it's not clear that there's a there's a good solution for that because at some point probably in the near future it's going to be impossible to tell the difference between a real photo and a fake photo or, or a real video and a fake video. So it's no longer going to be the case that seeing is believing. And we'll still, however, want to achieve truth or at least to understand the difference between what's fake and what's real. Right. So somehow we need some sort of new trust mechanism. And you know, it's kind of interesting that you know, here we are in this you know, you know, relatively speaking advanced age with modern technology. But what this technology is going to do is bring us back to the time when truth is achieved without photos or video, because people, you know, used to have to come to a belief without ever seeing something with a photo or video. And soon we're going to get back to that point because, you know, you'll see a video of it and you'll say, I don't know, maybe that's real, maybe that's not, I don't know. Um, so there needs to be a new form of, of achieving truth. And that's, I think, particularly important in the current 
you know, uh, political world as well. Yeah, it could um, be a big problem. You know, Mark Goodman, who did the book Future Crimes, talks about this. And, you know, what's on the screen is real and people can be deluded into all kinds of things. So it could be a very dangerous uh, thing. Yeah, and that's that's very different. This kind of danger, I agree with you. I think this kind of danger is very different than, say, AI robots taking over the world, but it's it's more sort of a, it's humans. You know, it's, it's what, what humans do with the technologies that they have. And it's very similar to, you know, the atomic age where humans built this capability and the atomic, you know, the, you know, atomic technology and atomic energy and what humans do with this technology will really determine their own fate. And I think it's very similar to, in, in this case, with AI, you know, what humans do with AI will determine their own fate, but not in the same sense as, you know, robot overlords in the Terminator sense yeah. taking over the world, but yeah. it will be more things like, how do we achieve truth, which, which is maybe a bit more mundane sounding. So another thing that I think AI is really, you know, a lot of this, a lot of discussion about AI and machine learning in, in the sense of, as, um, you know, human jobs and whether or not jobs that are traditionally done by humans will be overtaken by, by automated uh, machines. And I think that, that that is something that's very important, but it's also something that's, that's very old. And I think since the Industrial Revolution in particular, there have been many mechanisms that have replaced jobs that have previously done, you know, going back to the printing press and various forms of manufacturing and things. And that kind of changes, I think it's inevitable. And I think we should expect it. And, and more importantly, I think we should prepare for it and overcome it because there's no way to avoid it. And I think that the solution to that problem there, I think there is a good solution. And that's basically to, to sort of expect that we will have to spend our lives continuing to learn, sort of, it's sort of like a lifelong learning. And as being, being in a university, I like to think that, you know, getting an education is important, but one of the most important things about an education is not just knowing what you need to know for the current, say, AI-enabled society, but you need to, to know how to, to learn. You need to learn how to learn. And if you spend your time learning how to learn, then you're setting yourself up in your life to be able to adapt to changing environments. So that's, that's one of the things I actually always tell my students, which is that, you know, I'm teaching this, this stuff in this class, but most importantly, what you should be thinking about while you're learning is how are you learning what you're learning? And can you learn, can you sort of adapt? And can you learn to understand what are the strategies that you've used to learn uh, these things more efficiently so that in the future, when you encounter something that's completely different, you can learn something else faster um, and better right. and more efficiently and memorize it better. And that, I think, is something that educators should be teaching a lot. Is we should be teaching not just stuff, but we should be teaching how to learn stuff. And I think that will actually help because then, you know, given that change is inevitable, uh, the way you overcome it is by realizing that, okay, well, every couple of years, you're going to have to essentially go back to school or, or be a lifelong student. And that's something that I personally try to do is I try to think of myself as a student and I'm constantly trying to learn new things. And I think by constantly trying to learn, you sort of keep that learning uh, open to, to new ideas and open to learning uh, as, as an option for, for you. And I think that that would help a lot uh, to address the, this one issue. Well, Jeff, very good. We're, um, I mean, we're just about out of time. So the last question I want to ask is, uh, you know, for people that want to get in touch with you and find out more about your research and get involved, how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way to do it? Well, uh, I mean, the best way is to, to do a, a web search and to search my name and my email address is online. You can just send me an email. Okay, very good. So just Jeff Films, uh, University of Washington professor, and then people should find your info? That's right. Okay. Well, very good, Jeff. I appreciate you being on, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what goes on in AI in the near future. It's going to be uh, hopefully 
Amazing. Yeah, I think it will. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. It's fun. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.